Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks, and today we have one of the most central books to the topic of our channel as we could possibly get. We're going to talk to Robert Lombardo about his book, Organized Crime in Chicago, Beyond the Mafia, which is a fantastic, all-encompassing history of organized crime in Chicago. Uh, thank you for coming on, Robert. Well, you're welcome. Uh, thank you for inviting me. No, I was thrilled to uh, get you on. I've seen you uh, present at the American Society of Criminology in Chicago, and um, I've uh, mentioned to you before in the emails that I have uh, run into you a couple of times at that conference. So um, I've always been keen to get this book, and it was just a matter of when I was able to get it over here in Australia. So we might start off just with a bit of background about yourself. What's your personal history and how you came to write this book? Well, I'm... uh... I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in an Italian neighborhood that had gangsters. Uh, I was a career Chicago police officer, and I did work in the intelligence division and the organized crime squad for a number of years. And I'm now a, a university professor at Loyola University in Chicago. You know, after I, while I was a police officer, I had continued to go to school. And then once I I uh, got my degree. I was teaching part-time, and then when I finally retired, I was fortunate enough to get a full-time appointment here at Loyola in Chicago. Um, it's kind of uh, interesting that you asked uh, the question, how did I get interested in, the, in this very topic? Well, I mean, in the neighborhood where I grew up, you kind of grew up with organized crime. It was a, a real presence. I mean, it was part of everyday life. While I was even in grammar school, I know who the local I knew who the local hoods were. Uh, I uh, used to eat lunch at a hot dog stand often where they hung around, and I was even there one day when the, the, the police raided the place and uh, uh, took a bunch of them off to jail on a juice loan case. So I mean, organized crime was uh, just a fact of daily life, and even as a teenager. Um, you know, it was kind of a rough and tumbled neighborhood and, you know, we'd be drinking beer in the playground late at night. And, uh, I distinctly remember one outfit boss coming along and closing the corner, so to speak, where we were making too much noise. You guys go home or else it's after curfew. 
So I thought that was fascinating, and I had kind of took the sociology as a college student, and I always uh, was intrigued by this uh, by the presence of organized crime. How could this group of people exist and have so much power and be uh, a tangible presence in the community, and yet the police and government did very, very little about them? So that, that that kind of a hook to my interest, you know, as well as the fact that um, my grandfather's sister married a gangster from Chicago. He wasn't a high-level guy, but he was definitely on the chart. And we had that whole part of our family that my grandfather refused to associate with. And I never really understood until I was an adult why that was. Uh, he just uh, wanted nothing to do with Uncle Frank, and that was his name, uh, because he was a gangster in Chicago. And my, my grandfather felt that uh, that was wrong, that was inappropriate. As he always said, Uncle Frank doesn't work, so he's not welcome in our house. And that pretty much always uh, uh, always stuck with me through life. Uh, you know, growing up as an Italian in Chicago, in an Italian neighborhood, uh, you know, you're, you're a little bit labeled with the, this uh, organized crime yourself, and even in particularly in the, even in the police department, uh, people look, look at you like you, the potential that you could be related or you could be a member or a family member that's part of the mob. So uh, organized crime was just a regular part of daily life. That's fantastic. Um, and I love the suspicion you were saying about how could they operate um, without the police and the government doing something about it. Well, I think you answered that question very, very well in the book, that connection between local politics and policing and the organized crime is just so strong in Chicago. Yeah, there's no question about it. And again, that was, that was fascinating uh, to me. And the idea that the, the commonly accepted idea that the mafia came from Sicily really didn't fit in. Uh, yeah, in the police department, I saw largely the large majority of officers were dedicated and hardworking and certainly honest. But there was a small number that were related to organized crime that had a tremendous amount of power, so to speak. They had good jobs, good assignments. and But it didn't come from mobsters and gangsters. It came from the political structure. So quickly you, you recognize that there was an accommodation between the underworld in the upper world. And in Chicago, that was strong. And it was an accommodation that lasted, you know, right up until uh, the 1990s. Um, you know, we all knew that uh, the first ward in Chicago was dominated by organized crime. We all knew that they had the power to place people throughout the police department into sensitive jobs. And we all knew that many of these guys uh, grew up with gangsters. Now all of a sudden they're working in the places where they should be arresting some of these people. So it was a very, very real part of life. It was a real part of my professional career. But on the flip side, the other fascinating thing was there was this uh, tension in the police department between the good guys and the bad guys, but it was something that was never talked about. There were large numbers, far more good guys than bad guys, and they would go about doing their job, and they would arrest whoever needed to be arrested, and they would do as best they can in vice, narcotics, and gambling, uh, in intelligence, on the hood squad. But yet, because of the nature of the politics, the, the good policemen could never, so to speak, turn in the bad policemen. 
And in the same token, the bad policemen never criticized the good policemen for doing their job. There was like this, this incredible understanding that like everybody mind their own business. And if you get caught too bad, and but if you're doing the right thing, that's okay too. Nobody's going to criticize you. Nobody would make you be corrupt. It yeah. was like the un- unwritten law, so to speak. Well, I'm that was on- a fascinating sociological insight. Yeah, I'm working on a book about the corruption in Australia, uh, in amongst the police, and I see exactly the same thing, where people are saying cops would come up and basically say, "Do you want to join in? Do you want to cut?" And people go, "No, no, it's okay. I think I'll, you know." stay out of this one and everyone goes that's fine that's fine they go and ask someone else it's very very similar to what you just said well it's refreshing to know that you have corruption there in australia oh, not, just, <laughs> not just here in chicago yeah a so. uh, very different style but very much there yeah but so you know this is over this is this is really 99 percent over it's uh yeah the other fascinating thing is it took forever for the United States government to decide to get off their duff and do the job. Yeah. You know, that's, that's another thing that was fascinating to me. You know, the, we hear so much about the legendary J. Edgar Hoover who, who refused to have the FBI fight organized crime. It wasn't until after Hoover. It wasn't until we had the RICO laws. It wasn't until we had, I believe, Ronald Reagan as president of the United States that the the, the pendulum began to swing back in the other direction. And within 20 short years, they've, uh, the federal government has largely destroyed organized crime in Chicago and New York. It took them for uh, an awful long time to, to, to do, the, do their job. But once they made up their mind to do it, they did an incredible job. Well, that's also reassuring. And I hope uh, we get a similar response here. We're going through some major corruption inquiries right now. So we're... I think scandal is what brings about change. That's my theory. You don't have a good It does, scandal. but you also need the tools, which we never That's really right. had at the local level. You need the, the racketeering laws. You need electronic surveillance. You need that wiretapping. Yeah. You need investigative grand juries. You need witness protection. Uh, all these types of things are, are typically far beyond the resources of, of local police officers, even major cities like, like Chicago. Um, it's really disheartening to me as a professional law enforcement officer and even now as an educated, trained academic, that to think that uh, a 12,000 officer organization like the Chicago Police Department can't get their act together to, to rise above street crime. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going through the same arguments and it's all about exactly the powers you just listed, who can have them, what are the restrictions, and so they're being introduced, but our focus is different sort of organized crime. It's the uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs. They've got sure. the entire focus at the moment, but they, sure. they're carrying on exactly the same sort of role. But, you know, too, here, I mean, traditional organized crime in American society has always had this uh, political participation. And in my mind, you know how difficult it is to define organized crime, but in my mind, that's the deciding factor. Organized crime is different than a street gang or maybe even a motorcycle gang in that they don't have inroads into the political structure. Mm. Traditional organized crime was born in machine politics at the turn of the last century, uh, tied hand and glove to political machines, not only in Chicago, but in New York and in other places. It could, would not have existed if the politicians 
weren't happy to take that money, if the politicians weren't happy to um, syndicate vice, so to speak, or, or actually give criminals the license to participate in narcotics, prostitution, gambling, the types of things that are, the people want. So there's a demand for it, and even though they're illegal, uh, in organized crime and their ability to pay the politicians provided the mechanism for, to meet those demands. And again, I mean, political parties have for 100 years been funded by saloons, by alcohol, even drugs, and in particularly gambling. Uh, today, of course, it's different because we have so many different levels of social control. We have, you know, complex federal law enforcement. Uh, times have changed dramatically. The other thing that's changed is that the demand for these things has gone away. You don't need to, uh, I mean, you know, there's off-track betting, there's legalized gambling. Nobody really cares about prostitution anymore. It's, uh, you can pick up any phone book in Chicago and you'll see 50 pages of escort services. So I mean, society has even changed. It's become more permissive. Uh, we no longer seek to suppress these activities as we once did. No, that's right. And I think it's a good segue there. We can go back to a time in the late 1800s where Chicago was a place where a lot of people were coming through through migration. There was also the Civil War and people started to do that connection between politics, seeking the votes, seeking the money that was coming from vice. But it was also a separate group in society bringing the pressure towards what would later become prohibition. Sure. And prohibition gave organized crime a real boost. Uh, we had organized crime before prohibition, and it was probably, or I believe, at least in Chicago and other major cities run by the Irish, not by the Italians. The Italians just happened to be another, the next immigrant group that was coming in. They had another group, uh, been the major immigrants at that period of time. Maybe we would have had uh, different types of gangsters and Italian gangsters. So it was this critical juncture in history, and then that puritanical effort among the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America to control the Catholic political machines uh, led to a prohibition, and that was a big part of the effort uh, to outlaw alcohol. It wasn't just the women's Christian temperance movement, so Joe Lunchpail comes home from work on every Friday night with his check and doesn't blow it all in the local saloon and get drunk and go home and beat the white. But there was also this element that uh, this belief by the Brahmins, the people that controlled and ran America, that they were losing this control to what they described as the immigrant hordes or uh, the Italians, the Irish, the Catholics, people from the south of Italy as opposed to the north, from England, Germany, and places like that. And Control was, was, again, moving away from the rich industrial robber barons from the bankers in New York, and now it was being taken over by the machines, the, the ethnic big city machines. They were able to swing national votes. And one, one of the arguments about why prohibition came into being was simply to try to destroy the machine. If you can control the saloon, you could take away the power from the machines because, you know, most of your saloon keepers were aldermen, precinct captains, ward committeemen. That's where the vote was organized in the local neighborhood on the corner. It was right there in the tavern. The tavern played a critical role in the evolution of organized crime in the United States. 
And uh, the organised crime members also directly supported their candidates too with intimidation at the polling booths. Exactly. It went hand in hand. They, they, that's a, exactly it. They provided sluggers for the machine politicians. It provided people to uh, uh, hang campaign literature, to go door to door. Certainly part of the puzzle. Probably, in my mind, one that's more important than the fact that there may have been a mafia in Sicily in 1900 or 1890 or 1910. I think social structural conditions in Chicago are far more important than uh, the ethnic and cultural heritage of Southern Italian immigrants. Yeah. There was also a Jewish mafia there as well. Sure, sure, absolutely. Particularly in New York, not Chicago. They were integrated. Chicago was pretty much a, um equal opportunity employer. As a matter of fact, most of Al Capone's gangsters were not Italian. Only 47% were, so over half were not, which is something that most people uh, just uh, don't understand. And, and not, Sicilian, not necessarily Sicilian Italian either. No, not, not at all. It didn't become an Italian phenomenon until about 1950 when a conscious decision was made to restrict membership in Chicago only to Italians. And I don't relate that to the mafia per se, but I do relate it to the fact that you had most of Chicago's inner city, what they call the river wards, the machine politics wards at that period of time were largely Italian. The other ethnic groups, except for blacks, had moved up the ladder of social mobility, moved into better areas, moved into the suburbs. It was the Italians that were stuck in the ghettos of the inner city. So it only made sense that if you had Italian bosses that they would recruit from amongst their own. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, in my reading in the book, there's three stages. There's the pre-prohibition stage, the prohibition stage, and then the final stage that begins with the establishment of the syndicate the Chicago syndicate. Is that a fair assessment of the... Well, I would say with the establishment of the outfit, you had okay. you had prior to Al Capone, you had the, the Irish vice activities and you had the African-American vice activities and then, uh, of which Capone was a part under Big Jim Colosimo. You know, they worked in the house of prostitution and then along came Prohibition, uh, the Colosimo bunch and other gangs like hijackers, burglars, robbers, people of that nature, everyone turned to bootlegging. It's just like today, you know, as a police officer, you know, I would argue that crime has gone down all over the country, at least robbery, burglary and things like that because of drugs. Yeah. Uh, why, why be a, a stick up guy when you could sell drugs in face of lesser penalty? And the same thing happened back then. They all turned to bootlegging, and it was the syndicate. When Capone came to power, it was called the syndicate. After Capone uh, went away and he was replaced by Paul the uh, well, first by Johnny Torrio and then Paul the Wayne Rica, but somewhere around 1915, the name changed to the outfit, and outfit stuck up to the very present time. So we went from you know pre-prohibition to the syndicate. To, to the outfit. I would say those those were the three stages. Right, right. And who were the politicians who were involved at the different stages? It, was it both parties, or was there one particular party that had a better... Well, it was largely Democrats. I mean, of course, during Capone's time, we had a big Bill Thompson that was a Republican mayor. So that was around 1930. But once 
Thompson left office, Chicago has not had a Republican mayor since. So we've had Democratic mayor all the way for the last uh, 80 years, various Democratic mayors. So it's been it's been tied to the Democratic Party uh, uh, hand at fist, largely because Chicago's never had anything else since the days of Al Capone. The Democrats in power. Yeah, and was it sort of a, 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 an agreement that was inconvenient but uh, very necessary, or was there an active attempt to try and engage and get a part of the vice cut, basically, that was coming out of society? Well, in the 40s, for example, uh, it's well documented that the city administration, we, Ed Kelly was the mayor for about 16 years from the mid-30s through the 40s, and it's well documented that the machine was funded by the vice activity. Essentially, the argument is that he gave the outfit, the franchise, or the syndicate, the franchise to control gambling and other vice activity in the city of Chicago. So they would collect the kickback money and then it would go right up, uh, whether it was to the local police captain or to city hall. And then, you know, after Kelly, in 1950, we had Kennelly as a mayor, and he was a reform mayor, not tied to organized crime. As a matter of fact, he started a very effective organized crime unit that only lasted about four years called Scotland Yard. And you're probably familiar with this movie about the Los Angeles police that came out last year. Yes, I've actually interviewed the author of the original book, yeah. Well, very very similar things happened in Chicago. You know, in L.A., they essentially turned the police loose, and uh, through brutality, they were able to kick Mickey Cohen and the other mobsters out of Los Angeles. Kennelly did the same thing with Scotland Yard here in Chicago in the early 1950s, but Kennelly was a one-term mayor. He was replaced by Richard J. Daly, and that was the end of Scotland Yard. One of the first things Daly did was disband it. Now, once the uh, Summerdale scandal came and uh, where the police were committing burglaries and Daly brought in uh, O.W. Wilson to run the police department, he created an effective organized crime unit. And again, though, it only lasted the seven years that he was the superintendent. Once he uh, retired, um, it went back to essentially ignoring what was going on. It pretty much remained that way up until modern times. The, the days that I worked in intelligence, it was, again, a reform administration. Joseph DeLeonardi became superintendent, and he got some uh, good people in there and formed squads working hand-in-hand -hand with the FBI, and an awful lot of work was done in, in six short years. And then once again... Uh, you know, Joe D got chased, Joe D Leonardi, for essentially the organized crime in Chicago through the first war. Finally, were able to force him out. And that's well documented. And a short time after that, the city just disbanded uh, any organized crime effort, arguing that it, it was no longer necessary uh, that the FBI had pretty much cleaned up everything. So the police have had a spotty history, but when the powers to be allowed them to do the job, they did it. They did a good job with Scotland Yard, with the old intelligence division, uh, with the new intelligence division under Joseph Leonardi. But the years in between um, was always business as usual. Yeah. 
So what actually happened then in the Reagan years? What specifically happened that allowed Chicago itself to break away from this old system? Well, I think, again, the federal government finally stepped up to the plate. Uh, when Young Daly became mayor, Richard M. Daly, he actually uh, reorganized some of the electoral wards in the city, which took away some of the power from organized crime because they controlled the, the first ward, which would have been the downtown area. So even though um, we didn't see an aggressive effort under Richard M. Daly, we, we also did not see, or even under Richard J. Daly, we didn't see um, aggressive corruption. If something was going on, it was underground. And I've always found this to be fascinating. It's kind of like uh, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't in bed with them that I could see the dailies, but they didn't do anything to stop them either. Yeah, yeah. Which, which was a blessing to, to the gangsters. Mm. So yeah, there was just turning a blind eye. Yeah. So it was a, instead of commission, instead of committing corrupt acts, they, it was just omission. They just kind of turned, like you say, they turned pretty much turned a blind eye to what was going on. Yeah, yep. Now, there's two uh, groups I want to uh, discuss. We go back to, you've got a great chapter about the Black Mafia in right. Chicago that was around for quite a long time until it was eventually taken over. They were they lost control to the Italians. Right. They lost control of the policy racket, you know, the illegal lottery to the Italians. And that essentially, for all practical purposes, became, was the beginning of the end of the policy racket here in Chicago. Because, you know, it took 10 years or 15 years, but blacks just stopped paying it. When the money was going to fund black political organizations and feed black families, uh, everybody played it. But once it was the money was going into the pockets of the gangsters, people started turning away from, from the policy racket. And it, it eventually just kind of died of its own, on, on its own. Uh, it died with, with the outfit. The outfit was no longer making any money. Plus, you had the 60s and into the early 70s, you had the, the I don't want to say resurgence, but the the emerge, the, the, uh, the growth of the street gangs. Uh, you know, nobody, whether you were a gangster or any other white person, was able to, no, was, was no longer able to walk the streets of the inner city. Uh, these gangs of that particular day, like the Blackstone Rangers and the Vice Lords, were huge, violent groups. You know, they had a thousand members. They were 19-year-old hopheads on drugs. They had guns. They weren't afraid of anybody. And things were beginning to change. You had such crime in these areas of the city that even organized crime walked away from them. Uh, they continued to provide the heroin to the inner city, probably. They certainly provided it in the 50s, uh, into the 60s. But by the 70s, that, that was ending. Uh, we had the, the, uh, the evolution of the narcotic trade. We had the French connection ended from Europe, from Turkey, but now you had what they call brown heroin being grown in Mexico. So people no longer, like inner city blacks, no longer needed the Italians to get their heroin. They can just jump in a car and drive down to Texas 
and essentially, you know, find anybody in a border town, and they'll sell them all the heroin that they wanted and drive it back to Chicago. So a number of things changed there. I mean, the neighborhoods changed, the availability of drugs changed, uh, and it really was it really uh, it forced organized crime. Organized crime just evolved out of the heroin trade, which was then taken over by uh, Hispanics and, of course, uh, you know, the blacks themselves. Yeah. And these weren't the first get street gangs. You had the 42 gang uh, quite yeah. a few decades earlier. You've got a great chapter about them. Do you want to talk about the 42 gang? Yeah, the 42 gang, you know, if we if we stop and think about, you know, where gangsters came from, you know, again, this whole alien conspiracy theory is that they all jumped on a boat and they came from uh, the south of Italy and Sicily. When in reality, if most of Al Capone's gangsters weren't even Italian, the question becomes, where did they come from? They come from the slums of Chicago. Additionally, come 1950, when now there's it's second and third generation, uh, Al Capone's dead. Everybody of his dead prohibition generation is either in the old people's home or dead themselves. Where did these gangsters come from? You know, we had uh, shut off or prohibited Italian immigration from around 1920 all the way up to the end of World War II. So again, you have to ask this question, where did gangsters come from? They came from the slums of the city of Chicago. And probably one of the major producers of gangsters, or probably for sure, was the 42 gang on the west side. Uh, they were just bad, bad, bad kids that uh, grew up during Prohibition. They did armed robbery. They did bank robbery. They were uh, rum runners for the bootleggers delivering alcohol all over northern Illinois. And they were 17 and 18-year-old kids. And as they became adults, it was only natural that they would mature into organized crime. And they became, many of them became members of what came to be known as the, the Taylor Street Crew, one of the five street crews of the Chicago outfit. Just like New York had five families, we had what we called five crews. The only difference that I can find between Chicago and New York was that the five crews or the five families in New York were totally independent, where here everybody still reported to one main boss, all the five different sections. So you had four neighborhoods in Chicago and you had one suburb, and these were, those were the five street crews of the Chicago outfit. Yeah. And once again, this 42 gang was not a, a single ethnic grouping. No, but they were largely Italian, but they weren't totally. There were some Jewish young people. There were some uh, Irish for sure. Uh, the neighborhood that they came from on the west side, if you were to go south side of Roosevelt Road, it was all Irish. The north side was largely Italian with some Greeks and some actually even back then with some Mexicans. Uh, and that was the home of the 42 gang. So it was it was somewhat uh, integrated, so to speak. Mm. Yep. So who were some of the famous people who ended up going into the outfit out of the 42 gang? After the 42 gang, uh, you know, gangs amongst white kids, so to speak, pretty much slowed down in Chicago. You know, if you look at uh, the history of street gangs in the city, you know, gangs were made up of people that lived in the slums. So as each ethnic group moved out of the slums, their young people moved out of gangs. There's not a white gang left in the city of Chicago. And part of the problem that 
the African-American community has is that they didn't move out of the inner city. They remained there. They were stuck there, whether it's through uh, discrimination or lack of jobs or lack of opportunity. There's any number of arguments all being offered to explain their, their plight. But they've remained there, and as a result, they've remained in gangs. Historically, street gangs were largely a one-generation phenomenon. You came to this country, your kids, you lived in the inner city because you were poor, your kids joined gangs. As soon as you saved up enough money to leave, you did, and your grandkids were not in gangs. Uh, it didn't work that way for blacks because, again, because of segregation and also because of public housing. Um, you know, I think we did a disservice to them with providing them with public housing because um, they became these segregated um, enclaves that remained in effect far more than one generation. Yeah, yeah. And there's policies all around the world now of even if when you're providing some form of government housing that you spread them out and you don't have right. uh, entire suburbs of government-supplied housing because that tends to be the result. Sure. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. We, we kind of learned our lesson. Well-intended, but it, it was a big mistake. Big yeah. mistake. So what's the story of organized crime in Chicago today? How's it all ended up? I mean, has it completely been wiped out in its old form or are there new forms? Largely, I would say largely. Uh, there's still some bookmakers around and, you know, there's still some monkey business with contracts and, uh, you know, they still have some inroads, I, I think, into the city. But I would say it's 90% over. Our organized crime problem today is the drug cartels. Uh, this is the headquarters for many of the Mexican cartels, and of course the street gangs. Uh, and again, the government has done a good job of breaking up the major gangs in Chicago. However, they're now what they call factionalized, where instead of having like five major gangs, we have 50 subgroups which in some ways are harder to control. They no longer answer to a general, a main head, or with the Latin gangs, they call them an Inca. There's no longer a boss. There's no Al Capone of street gangs. They're all crews of five, six, seven, eight guys and girls that just run independently and run wild, which has contributed to, I think, to the, the, the level of violence that Chicago was famous for. Yeah. Plus, we have less police officers because of the economic crisis. We probably have 1,500 less police officers than we did six or seven years ago before the downturn in the economy. And I think it's had a, a, a direct effect. So that's about just over 10% of the police force. Sure. That's oh, for sure. Without, without, without a doubt. Yeah. So um, what are you working on now? What's your next project that you're well, I don't uh, have a book that I'm working on. I mean, I, I have been collecting material for about the history of gangs in Chicago, so I may do something with that or an article for sure, depending on how much I can gather. It's really difficult to gather information from the Civil War up until Prohibition, but that's been the effort. And, of course, I'm you know, doing some other policing things, that some research on policing. But I'm also doing some research on... Uh, Racket subcultures. I think one of the things we didn't talk about was, you know, while 
uh, poverty, what we would call social disorganization, would explain the emergence of gangsters. You grew up in a bad neighborhood and you have no opportunity to turn to crime. But the Italians, how, how, why did they stay into it? I mean, by 1950, the Italians weren't a ghetto residents. They were middle class, working class people. So why did they stay into it? And my argument in the book is that it's because of the development of these street crew neighborhoods, these racket subcultures, or as General, Gerald Suttles defined them as defended neighborhoods. You know, the four Chicago gangster neighborhoods uh, were ethnic neighborhoods where people refused to move. So now they're surrounded in the inner city by all these dangerous classes, by high crime, by public housing. So we created this little hothouse effect and that's where this, the second and the third generation of gangsters came from, these racket subcultures, mm. which is something that has been recognized in the literature, but nobody's really made the argument that the racket subculture is what has a, what allowed organized crime to continue past the poverty stage of the Italians. So I'm doing some work with another professor in, in, in that that area. It's interesting that, you know, probably the major finding uh, based upon crime data that we've, I mean, real, you can crunch the numbers statistically is that there's less violent crime in any neighborhood where you have gangsters. Really? Because they can control the streets. Yeah. They have, they've become an additional method of social control in these neighborhoods. That's interesting. I'm reading a book for my next interview at the moment, uh, which is a study of the prison gangs in California. And the author is making a very similar argument that violence has gone down because the prison gangs are in a very effective form of governance inside the prisons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm. For sure. That's quite amazing. Well, look, Robert Lombardo, thank you very, very much for doing this interview. Um, I, 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 I have to say, I really enjoyed the book. Obviously, it's classic organized crime being Chicago. Sure. But you've done a brilliant job also of tying in the criminological theory about organized crime, such as the things you were just talking about then, into the book, and you demonstrate it so well. Uh, it would be a great uh, basis for a course in organized crime, no matter where you are in the world, because Chicago is just a beautiful case study of how organized crime is part of a society of crime. So, well, thank you very much again for the... You're welcome.